and welcome to Return to Regalia, on Underland Chronicles reread podcast. I'm Una. And I'm John. Today we'll be covering chapters 7 through 9 of The Curse of the Warm Bloods, in which Gregor attends the plague meeting. What do you remember about reading this book for the first time? Uh, for the first time? Gosh, that was like four years ago. This was the one where I felt like stakes got real, which yeah. is interesting considering how much happens in the first two books. But this is the one where I remember it seeming like it kicked into high gear. Yeah, absolutely. What were the standout scenes when you read this book? Like, do you have any very like specific memories of scenes that happened in this book? Jungle Luxa and the crew yes. is just amazing. Same. Yes. Agree. Like, I love how that's the first time we get a sense of just how expansive the entire Underland is. Like, it's the first time, aside from, like, we've got a little bit of, like, the locale, but, like, a whole jungle underground is completely new territory. Like, we've never gotten anything outside of, like, okay, kind of caves, got some underwater running water, but, or underground running water, but here we have an entirely new climate that just seems right out of a fantasy novel, which of course it is, but like we've never gone in that direction before, and it's amazing. Truly, I definitely agree. And then Lux is there. And then Lux is there. Yeah, no, the jungle is iconic. Luxa in the jungle is iconic. What's not to love? All right, yeah, let's get right into it. Chapter seven. Where we left off, Gregor had just thrown up outside Ares's hospital room. We start with him throwing up some more, and eventually being led to a bathroom by an underland woman. As Gregor retches into the toilet, the narration describes what Ares looked like in his hospital bed. He lies on his back, with his wings spread at awkward angles. Patches of his fur are missing where purple bumps the size of cantaloupes now grow and ooze blood and pus. His tongue is white and hanging out of his mouth, and he seems to be struggling for air. Which is just so disgustingly vivid. Like I said, it gets real. Like, even like in the last book where we had the like immense, like that, that they mentioned the mites that like immediately devour everything. Like it's, it, it's a blink and you'll miss it moment because it goes right. so fast. And then even with like Temp losing a leg, it grows right back and there's no real consequences. And even when characters die, it's always really quick. This is Ares. We've met him already. We know him. He's been in the last two books. He's like a, a like a major character in the story, and even if it's like with Boots in the first book where she's constantly in peril, or in the second book when she's even more presumed dead, we don't really get a sense that Ares is going to die, at least I didn't. It feels so much more profound because of how vividly it's described, like you said. Yeah, and this is like a really graphic, slow, painful death. We did have the mites devouring Pandora in book two, but that was, like you said, really quick and almost cartoonish in the way that it happened. Like the mites just strip her to the bone and it's over just like that. And it's not really graphic. I think the most graphic we get in book two is probably when the Bane's parents are fighting and they kind of like kill each other at the same time and like rip each other's throats out and there's like intestines and stuff. But, like, that also was over quickly. This thing with Ares is, like, profound suffering. It's really, really dark and just, like, really intense. Yeah. And she doesn't skimp on the details. No. Yeah, I think I must have skipped over the fact that the purple lumps are the size of cantaloupes. That is a very large lump to have on your body, even if you're a giant bat. Yeah. 
Gregor stops throwing up in the toilet and apologizes because he's ashamed at his reaction to Ares. The Underland woman tells him not to be because lots of people have similar reactions, like her husband, who she says is a great warrior, fainted when he saw a plague victim. So we're about to learn that this is Howard's mom, Susanna, who is Luke's mom's sister and Vicus and Solovet's daughter. So the husband she's talking about is York, Howard's dad, who we get to meet in the fifth book. So I think that Susanna is describing what must have been York seeing Howard for the first time and fainting when he saw his son sick, which is like really heartbreaking. Yeah. Poor Howard. I know. He's he's really been through the vinger. Yeah, that poor boy. Gregor asks if Ares saw him throwing up and Susanna assures him that he was asleep. Gregor says he'll be okay to see Ares again now and asks if Susanna is a doctor. She explains she's a visitor and introduces herself and Gregor realizes who she is. She says Howard talks highly of Gregor and credits him with saving his life when they were all on trial for treason at the end of book two. Gregor tells Susanna that Howard was amazing during that quest, and when she thanks him, her eyes well with tears. Gregor asks if she's okay and where Howard is, as she wipes his face with a wet towel, which is a very motherly gesture. She reveals that Howard is also in the hospital with the plague, along with Merith's bat Andromeda. There we have the three. Yep, the three plague cases. Gregor thinks about how it makes sense that Howard and Andromeda have the plague because they could have gotten it from Ares on the Prophecy of Bane quest. Because at this point, they think that Ares got the plague from the mites that killed Pandora. So it would make sense that Howard and Andromeda could have gotten the plague from him then. While also raising the question of why Gregor and Boots did not. Exactly. Gregor comments to Susanna on how he can't believe he doesn't have the plague too. And Susanna posits that maybe something about being an overlander gives him an immunity to it. Together they go back to see Ares again, and this time Gregor is braced for it. Susanna notes Ares' incredible strength, and the narration says, Gregor nodded, but he wondered if that was a good thing. What if it just meant that Ares would suffer longer than most creatures before he died? Which is getting back to what we were talking about. Like, this is so intense. It's not like a quick, violent death. It's like this slow, painful, disgusting thing that Gregor has to like witness his friend going through. And like, we all love Ares. We've been with him for two books and we know how important he is to Gregor. And again, Gregor's like still like 12 or 13. He's 11 right now. He's still 11? He turns 12 in this book. He only, he's still 11. Yeah. And he's already having to think like this for not even close to the first time in his life. He's already had long periods of time where he thinks his dad's dead. Mm -hmm. And then he thinks his sister is dead. Yeah. And now he thinks Ares is going to die. He, he, he thinks Luxa may be dead. They, they talk about that as well in these chapters, how like they have to come to the terms of that it's been so long, they kind of have to presume that Luxa and Twitch Tip and the rest of their group is just gone. Exactly. Yeah, he has encountered a lot of death. Yeah, it's, it's tragic. Ares opens his eyes for a second, and he and Gregor lift their hands toward each other to mimic the way Bonds usually clasp hands. Ares falls back asleep, and Susanna takes Gregor down the hall to see Howard and Andromeda, who are playing a game of chess together. 
The two of them are much healthier than Aries. Howard only has one purple bump the size of a walnut on his neck. That's still pretty sizable. I mean, yeah, if you're going off of lumps that you get. I think anything that size in terms of bumps on your body is not good. Wait, wait how big are walnuts? <laughs> I it feel is like, like a walnut miles, can right? fit in like the palm of your hand. Right, but it's still sizable. But that's pretty sizable, yeah. especially if it's like full of blood and pus yeah. and it's like purple. And deadly. Yeah. When they see Gregor, they hurry over to greet him. Even though they can't hear each other through the glass wall, they read each other's lips. Howard asks if Boots is here too, and Gregor confirms. Dr. Naviv enters with a tray of medicine for Howard and Andromeda, and they have to get back into their beds. Susanna says that Naviv treats all the plague patients personally, and Gregor says, that's not a job for wimps, and then clarifies for Susanna, You've got to be brave to do that. I like how Gregor's getting better at, like, knowing how to talk to the Underlanders in a way that they understand. Right, now I want to look up the etymology of wimp. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I hadn't thought about doing that. Maybe I'll just do, like, a quick search right now, because I'm really curious about- Yeah. I mean, I I know it's like how, like, screw- like, I know this in Weeding Princess Bride, but screw up is apparently, like, a lot older of a turn of phrase than people imagine. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So I th feel like maybe wimp is a similar thing. Like, it's actually- the dates back to the 1500s. We just don't think that <laughs> way. I don't know. If it had dated back that far, the Underlanders would know that word. Right, that's what I'm wondering. But here it says that the word wimp comes from the word whimper. Mm, that um, makes sense. Origin uncertain, it huh. says. And it seems to have appeared in the 1920s. So oh, yeah, okay. that's so, pretty yeah. recent. Still 300 years prior or past the date when the Underlanders would know. Yeah. I feel like wimp is one of those words that sounds like what it is, though. Like, yeah, like wimp and whimper, that makes sense. Yeah, but I do like how Gregor is, is like, clarifying for Susanna, like, oh, that means that you're not brave. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I always like that part. Gregor decides it's time for him to get back to his mom before she starts to worry. And on his way out of the hospital, Merith calls to him from inside one of the rooms. My darling Merit! Your favorite character. <laughs> my favorite! Oh my god, I'm so glad he's back! Gregor is relieved to see him, as am I, because the last time they saw each other, Merith was severely injured. When he gets out of bed with the help of a crutch, Gregor realizes his leg has been amputated, leaving only the very top of his thigh. Merith jokes, I am working hard to be like Temp and grow a new one. <laughs> I love That's him! Good. Also, I don't think I ever paid attention to the fact that he literally only has, like, part of his thigh. Like, that's almost his whole leg that was amputated. Yep. For some reason, I thought that it was, like, at the knee. But, like, that's a lot. Yeah, and later he gets, like, a, a prosthetic leg, which is pretty cool. My uncle has one of those. Oh, for real? Yeah, he had a blood clot a long while back, so he had to get his leg amputated. Oh, man. Yeah. How high up? I don't remember. I think it's around the knee. I don't think it's quite as high as Mammoth has. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't usually see it in his pants. <laughs> yes. Yeah, of course. Merith explains that the doctors couldn't save his leg from infection, but he doesn't need his leg as long as he has Andromeda. Then he seems to remember she has the plague and he rubs his eyes. Gregor assures him that she'll be okay because the plague meeting is about to start and they'll find a cure. They talk about how strange it is that some of the questers on the Prophecy of Bane trip got the plague while others didn't. Hi, Noodle. A noodle, little disruptor. We are recording at John's apartment, so instead of Lola, we have the company of John's cats, Noodle and Yang Yang. There he goes. 
Yeah, so Gregor and Merith are talking about how, like, isn't it weird how, like, how Howard and Andromeda got the plague, but we didn't? Like, that's so weird. And throughout the book, Gregor's gonna keep thinking about this more and more. Like, it's wild that he was flying around on Ares with open wounds and he didn't get the plague then. It's all very good hints, very good foreshadowing for what we find out about the plague later. I also like it's already shedding some doubt on the idea of it being like an overlander immunity because yeah. Meowth is also immune. Exactly. So it's, if it had just been, oh, Gregor and Boots don't have it, that would have been like, oh, that's the predominant theory. But now it's like, no, we really have no idea why. And I love how much it comes up in these beginning chapters it's really casting doubt early on about the origins of the plague. Gregor makes a comment about how he'll only have to stay in the Underland for a few hours, and Merith asks, did Vicus tell you this? At first, Gregor says yes, but when Merith asks if he's certain, Gregor remembers that it wasn't Vicus who told him he could go home after the meeting, but Ripred. Scheming that. <laughs> the chapter ends with Gregor realizing that Ripred lied about the plague meeting to get him and Boots back in the Underland. Top 10 iconic Ripred moments. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, maybe not. He's had a lot of iconic moments. That's true. I could I could <laughs> maybe name like 10 others. <laughs> but it definitely like an iconic Ripred manipulation. Yeah. Like classic. And he always he always tinges it with a bit of truth. That's the thing. Because like exactly. he, he, he says that right before he lays down the hammer that Ares is one of the plague sufferers. Yes. That, if, if he wasn't going to come then, he was definitely going to come at that point. Exactly. It's very well put together. Rip Red's, like, rhetoric, his argument for why Gregor should come. It's very effective. And I think Rip Red has probably been practicing the art of manipulation for a very long time. Yes. Longer than Gregor's been alive, I'd yeah. say. Yeah, probably. He's really a master at it. And he, later in these chapters, like, he sticks to his story of, like, well, the prophecy says, like, we're gonna get to it, and we can talk about it more oh, yeah. then. But Ripred is really funny, the way that he can twist words, especially the prophecies, to his advantage. Oh, yes. Yeah. That, that we're jumping books ahead for that. But. Exactly, exactly. But it's good to note all of these moments that he's like, he either takes the prophecies very literally or he interprets them in a different way to suit his needs. And there's no like consistency with that. He just kind of like says whatever he needs to to make people believe that he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> So chapter eight starts with Gregor hurrying back to the room with Vicus, Grace, and Boots. Grace demands to know where Gregor's been, and when he explains he threw up and had to wait for his stomach to settle, his mom is concerned. She comments on how he gets motion sick on long car rides, too, and Gregor thinks that this is exactly the type of thing he was worried about her doing. Gregor insists that he's fine, and Vicus says it's time for them to go to the arena for the meeting. Nike and Vicus's bat Euripides fly them there, and when they see all the different species gathered in their own little groups, Grace asks Gregor to explain who's on whose side. So Gregor gives her the spark notes on the war. Basically, the humans and the rats are enemies, the humans and the bats are allies, and the cockroaches just want to be left alone, but they love boots. Which actually sums it up pretty succinctly. Yeah. Doesn't account for all the creatures, but all the major yes. players. In general, that is who's allies with who. 
we don't get the fireflies, but then even they even mention how kind of irrelevant the mice actually are. The right. Nibblers, exactly. Which I I think is a very fun little moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're about to get to it. Nike and Euripides drop them off on the mossy field and go to join the bats. Ripred is there with two other rats, and they're all covered in a yellow powder that Vicus explains is to kill fleas. When Boots sees Temp in a group of cockroaches, she runs to him. Grace tries to stop her, but Gregor warns her not to mess up Boots' relationship with the roaches. Grace is taken aback by the way Gregor just bossed her around, and he course corrects by saying, I mean, just be polite, please. Boots greets Temp happily, telling him he waked up, referencing the explanation Gregor gave her at the end of book two, that Temp was sleeping, though at the time Gregor figured he was probably dead. Boots counts his legs and is delighted to find all six. She asks for a ride and Temp obliges. Gregor tells his mom to come meet the roaches and promises they're nice. Boots introduces Grace as her mama and the roaches whisper to each other and bow. They call Grace maker of the princess and most fearsome swatter because she's Boots' mom and they're afraid of her because she swats a lot of bugs. She addresses the roaches and demands they just call her Grace, then turns to everyone else in the arena and repeats herself. <laughs> I love this moment where she's just like, stop calling me all of these titles. Just call me Grace. It's hereditary. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I love how in the past few chapters, like, everyone has a different title for her. Like, Nike and Vicus are, like, mother of the warrior, like, mother of our light, or whatever. And she just has to keep saying, like, just call me Grace. Just call me Grace. It's a really funny bit. While Grace goes to meet the bats, Gregor heads for Ripred. He warns Ripred that he better not have lied about going on a quest to find the cure. And Ripred again cites the fact that the prophecy only asks for them to, quote, bring the warrior from above. He also adds that he doesn't particularly like the idea of going on another trip with Boots and her crawler friends. Gregor tries to ask if that's what everyone thinks or if that's just Ripred's interpretation of the prophecy, and Ripred deflects by saying, well, you'll have to ask around, won't you? Mm -hmm. Then he avoids more conversation with Gregor by asking Vicus if they can get the meeting started, saying, Some of us have lives to live, however briefly. <laughs> He's hilarious. I love him. He's like almost weaponizing incompetence here. Yeah, I, 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 that's my interpretation. If you don't like that interpretation, sorry, but I just thought you had to pop in here for a second. Yeah, yeah. He's taking the prophecy very literally, even though he knows damn well that the Underlanders want Gregor to go on a quest. And by virtue of that, he probably knows that the quest will end up meaning Gregor does have to go on a quest. Yeah, exactly. But Ripred made the decision, like, if Gregor thinks that he has to go on the quest, then he's not going to come down here. So I'm just going to leave that part out and choose to tell him a very literal interpretation of the prophecy. Yeah. It's not a lie. It's no mission of the full truth. Exactly. And like, Ripred is acting like, well, if everyone else thinks that you have to go on a quest, like, that's their problem. Like, <laughs> he's like, this is what I believe. This is what I think. It's not up to me. Yeah, exactly. He's like, well, I'll have to ask around and see what other people think. But yeah, he's hilarious. <laughs> Vicus asks where the nibblers are, and Ripred says his companions, Lapblood and Mange, were in charge of inviting them. 
The two rats admit they neglected to invite the nibblers on purpose because they drove the nibblers out of their lands on purpose and they don't care if the mice die of the plague. Ripred is outraged that they disobeyed orders and warns them they'll finish discussing this in the tunnels. Somehow I still don't get the sense that Ripwood is actually all that angry about that as well. Oh yeah? Like, I feel like he's upset that they didn't listen to him, not that they didn't invite the mice. Yeah, I think that he probably thinks it would have been better to have the mice because they're also warm bloods and they could have, like, helped with this whole, like, cure effort. But I think in the grand scheme of things, Ripred also doesn't think that the mice would have that much to contribute. Ripred doesn't seem to have much respect for any other species. Right. Like humans, mice, bats, roaches. Like he doesn't really think any of them are all that cracked up. So I feel like he's mad for his authority being shirked and the greater good, but not actually. Yeah. For the, like he's not mad on the nibbler's behalf. No, yeah, absolutely not. I think I could probably count on one hand the number of people Ripred actively respects. Probably just like Vicus Solovet. And Gregor in a few blinking moments. Yes. And most of the time, not even him. Not even him most of the time. Yeah, just like in a few very, uh, very good moments that Gregor makes the right decision. Ripred is proud of him. But yeah, Ripred does not have a lot of respect for people. <laughs> Finally, Solovet and Naviv arrive and call the meeting to order. Naviv gives some background info on the plague from her huge leather-bound book. She explains that similar plagues have cropped up in the past, both 250 years ago and 80 years ago, and they call it the Curse of the Warmbloods. At that point, you're kind of asking for it to resurge every several decades. Right. <laughs> if you call it a curse, then yeah. Yeah, a curse implies it will never go away. When asked about a cure, she shows a drawing of a star-shaped plant called Starshade. Apparently, it only grows in one place in the Underland, which also happens to be where the plague originated. This lines up with the prophecy that says, in the cradle, find the cure. It's called the Vineyard of Eyes, and as soon as Naviv says this, everyone goes quiet. Eventually, Lapblood speaks up and says, we may as well just slit our throats now. <laughs> giving us the impression that the vineyard is super dangerous. Queen Athena of the Bats comments on how the Nars had no problem driving the mice into the vineyard, and the different species start bickering. Vicus cuts them off and draws their attention back to the starshade. Naviv says that because the plant can't grow anywhere but the vineyard, they have to go there and harvest a bunch to bring back and make medicine out of. Lapblood voices her concern that even if the humans do develop a cure, the rats will never receive it. She says, We Nars starve now, at your hand. The plague runs like wildfire through our tunnels. Today we learn you have yellow powder to stop the fleas that spread it, but do you send it? Solovet just replies, You attacked us, and now whimper when you must suffer the consequences. This is absolutely insidious of her. This gets back to something that we touched on briefly when we covered the beginning of book two. At dinner, Ripred was commenting on how little food the Nars have due to the humans cutting off their fishing grounds. And Solovet said, perhaps a little hunger will help them reflect on their poor judgment in attacking us. Solovet over and over again exhibits this mindset of like, because some rats declared war on the humans, they need to punish the entire species by starving them and giving them the plague. 
Also, it's just not very good warfare strategy in my mind, honestly. I mean, it's just a very conflict-based mentality to begin with, rather than, like, trying to pacify or compromise with the rats, or at least, like, get them to change their ways. Mm -hmm. She's just doubling down on the torture, which is just going to rile them up even more. Exactly. Like, she doesn't, like, I don't feel like she's thought about the long-term ramifications her actions will have in the battle itself. Oh, absolutely not. And I think at dinner in book two, Rip Red says, like, you reap what you sow, Sullivan. Right. Um, and this was is absolutely going to come back and bite her. I also love the dynamic between Vicus and Solovet that really emerges here, I feel yes. like, in this book. Before this, we've only gotten a few glimpses into it, but here it's like, these two do not agree on most, like, ideological Right. Bases. Like, this is not something that Vicus gives the impression that he's in favor of. Yeah, But no. she's full force going at it. They do not see eye to eye on this at all. Yeah. We're gonna it's... see a bit of that next chapter, too. But yeah, Solovet is totally, like, fanning the flames of war here with not helping the Nars and just, like... I mean, we talk a whole lot about the Bane starting a genocide against the mice in book four. And in book five, we learn about Sandwich's genocide against the Diggers. But like Solovet is committing a genocide right now against the rats. She's carrying on in the footsteps of Sandwich. Yeah, really living up to the human's legacy in the Underland. Yeah, no, it's just like, she doesn't care who's dying of the plague if they're a gnar. Like, even if it's innocent children, she's like, your whole species has to pay for attacking us. And that's really evil. <laughs> and she's only gonna get worse. Lapblood and Mange get ready to attack Solovet, but Ripred steps between them. He says, tides turn, Solovet. Remember this moment when your own pups cry with hunger and the plague stills their hearts. Even now, your grandson lies behind glass in the hospital. So in episode 24, when Nate and I covered the first three chapters of this book, I was talking about how later in book four, Ripred has to ask who Howard is because they've never actually met. So I thought that it made sense that Ripred wouldn't have mentioned to Gregor that Howard also had the plague. But this comment makes it seem like Ripred does know who Howard is. He also maybe cares so little that he forgets by the time yeah. the, the fourth book comes around. He's like, ah, you humans all look the same. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking like maybe he just doesn't know that Gregor knows who Howard is. I think he also might literally have selective memory. He remembers things that are important for the points he makes and then forgets them when they're not important. That's true. Like, I feel he, like he's he, not the kind of person to just like forget information though. Like... I feel like he would hang on to that because you never know when it might be useful. Especially, like, who's related to the royal family and the general of the army. I think that, like, if Ripra knows that Howard has the plague, he would know that Howard supposedly got it on the prophecy of Banequest that he was helping Gregor with. So, like, Ripred would know that Gregor and Howard know each other. I'm already forgetting, but how much interaction did he have with Gregor and Howard during the Prophecy of Bane quest? Like, how much overlap was there between them all? Ripred wasn't on the Prophecy He wasn't of on Bane. it because he was a Gregor just literally dropped the Bane off when they got back. Yes, and yeah. Howard had already split off to take Merith home to Regalia at that point. Right. 
So I don't think Howard and Rip Red literally ever met. But Howard and Gregor knew each other pretty well from traveling together right. during the Prophecy of Bane quest. Anyway, yeah, it doesn't really matter, but I just thought it was there's an so interesting bit. <laughs> there's so few, like, continuity gaffes like that. Because yeah. Suzanne Collins is so tightly writing everything. Yeah, that yeah. they are notable when they crop up, I suppose. Yeah, usually it's pretty airtight, but yeah, just interesting. So yeah, Rip Red tells Solovet that her grandson is sick. Solovet asks where her granddaughter Luxa is, implying she blames the rats for her disappearance, which, fair. But Rip Red admits he doesn't know, but they have to set it aside to find the cure, because they have mutual need. Which is like Rip Red's whole thing, is this idea of mutual need. The greater good. Suddenly warning horns begin to blow in the tunnels outside Regalia. Everyone is confused because they don't know who would be attacking the city right now. Then a bright orange bat careens into the arena. Nike calls him Icarus and asks what's wrong with him. And when Gregor sees the oozing purple bumps in his fur, he yells that it's the plague. The chapter ends with Icarus losing control of his wings and plummeting to the ground. He flew too close to the sun. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what do you expect when you name your kid Icarus? <laughs> This always, whenever it describes the bats as bright orange, it's always very interesting to me because mm -hmm. I'm imagining literally like a spray paint orange colored bat. Yeah. Because like what other, if they say, if they just said like orange, okay, I'd be like, okay, it's kind of a dirty, like brownish, reddish, right. color, brownish orange. But like, no, bright orange is like, I'm like thinking, neon. Yeah, I'm thinking like a Cheeto colored right. bat right now. It's really funny. Icarus just shows up for this one scene and then dies yeah. by falling. We never learn anything about him. No, we know his name is Icarus, though, and that's very apt. Yeah. All right, chapter nine. Icarus dies instantly when he hits the ground. Everyone scrambles back except Grace, who is holding boots and paralyzed by fear. Solovet orders them to torch the body, and Ripred shouts no, but it's too late. As soon as the torches hit Icarus's corpse, fleas start jumping off of it. Again, kind of a boneheaded move by Solovet. Like, it's a bloodborne pathogen carried by fleas. What do you think's gonna happen if you try to burn the body? Yeah, literally. I don't think that she thought that through at all. And Rip Red is immediately like, no, don't do that. And he's like gnashing his teeth, trying to get them to stop. He is, he just, he, it's described like he, he's literally gnashing his teeth in desperation, yeah. I think is the line. Yeah, no wonder Ripred doesn't have any respect for anyone. He's like the smartest motherfucker here. It's also interesting but because like even in that dinner scene in the last book, at this point we've got the sense that like he does, like we mentioned, he does respect Solovet, you'd think. Like he seems to have a good rapport with her. Yes. He seems to share like a lot of warfare-like mentality with her. They clearly have a lot in common. Mm -hmm. But in this, these last two chapters, it seems a lot more like... No, he kind of thinks she's a stupid human like the rest of them. Yeah, yeah. I think that Rip Red really thinks that Solovet doesn't think things through all the way, probably. Which, again, fail. Gregor pulls his mom and sister onto Queen Athena, and the narration says, Probably you weren't supposed to hop on a queen without asking permission, but this was no time for polite small talk. Yeah, well, they're the princess and the mother of the princess. That's the true. The maker of the princess. Exactly. So they're royalty themselves. Yeah, it can't be that big of a deal. No. But I, I always think that line is funny. Oh, yeah. The rats and cockroaches scurry away into the tunnels, and all the humans have been picked up by bats. They fly to the royal box, which is a section of high seats in the bleachers of the arena. Naviv has everyone basically social distance while she sprays them with yellow flea powder. They rub the powder into their skin and hair, and Boots tells Gregor, 
you yellow, and recites some words that begin with Y, like yak. And the narration says, she had never seen a yak, except in her ABC book. Neither had Gregor, for that matter. Probably no one would have ever heard of a yak if it hadn't been about the only animal that began with Y. <laughs> I also love that line. Yeah. Every time I read this book. It's, a good, it's, 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 it's good because it, it hits home. <laughs> yeah. I, I've also never seen a yak. Exactly. We've all had this experience of like, we know what a yak is because it's in the ABC books. But anyway, after everyone's completely covered with powder, they gather together in the box. Boots points to the dead bat and says, Bat's sick. Bat needs juice. Because whenever she has a cold, she gets a cup of juice. Gregor does his classic thing of telling Boots that the bat is just asleep because he can't figure out how to tell her that someone died. And I'm like, that's really not your responsibility, Gregor. No, also your mom's right there. <laughs> yeah, for real. Solovet orders the field to be disinfected, and Naviv adds that the tunnels leading away from the arena will need to be sprayed too. Although the powder-covered rats and cold-blooded roaches who escaped into the tunnels are safe from the fleas, the humans and bats need to be checked for bites back in Regalia. Grace insists that she and the kids are leaving now, and Vicus tries to reason with her, but she demands he tell Nike to fly them home. She mentions how they were told that they only had to come to the meeting, and Vicus asks where they got that idea. <laughs> Gregor explains it was Ripred and describes how the swarm of rats scared them into coming. Vicus and Solovet apparently didn't know about that, and while Vicus tries to give Ripred the benefit of the doubt, Solovet is certain that Ripred lied on purpose, but she also admits that she would have done the same thing to get the Overlanders down to Regalia. Here's what I, uh, ironically, even though the, on the on surface disagreeing, I feel like Vicus knows just as well that this was Ripred lying, he's just not going to admit it. Like, because as we've talked about before, Vicus isn't afraid to also engage in some white lies yeah. to, for the benefit of quests. Oh, like absolutely. He's, I feel like even if he would never say he would, he would have done something like this as well. He just maybe wouldn't have been as aggressive about it. Right, as blatant. But Vicus has definitely pulled stuff like this before, yes. like not giving the full information. Yes. Vicus gets angry with Solovet and says they can't force the Overlanders to stay, especially since they were brought here under false pretenses. He tells Nike to fly the Overlanders home, and Solovet calls for the guards to stop them. Gregor is bewildered at the way Vicus and Solovet are fighting, and he's not sure who actually has the power to make this decision. He tries to make a compromise, saying that he can't leave Ares to die, so Mom should take Boots home so they can get Lizzie and Grandma and go to Virginia. Dad can wait for Gregor to get back, and then they'll join the rest of the family on the farm later. Solovet says they'd have to bring this deal to the council, but Grace just tells Gregor that she can't leave him down here alone. Gregor gets the feeling that all three of them aren't going to be allowed to leave, so she should take Boots home while she can. He reaches out to squeeze her hand and realizes something's wrong. Then the chapter concludes with Gregor brushing away the powder on the back of Grace's hand and finding a small red bite on her skin. And that is the end of part one, The Plague. I'm gonna make a bold statement. That's the best cliffhanger of the entire series so far. Ooh. I'm gonna go that far. That's the biggest impact of like good gravy. We've really reached this point where it's not even him. It's not even him and Boots. This is like, now it's the entire family's getting involved. By the end of this series, this entire family is cursed. 
You know what? You are absolutely right. And I am willing to also uh, hop on board this, like, this is the greatest cliffhanger ever. Because it's devastating. It's devastating. It, it, like, none of them can escape. No. They're all, they're all trapped down here. They're all so entangled in the Underland. And I, ha I had forgotten that that was a plot point when I was rereading. And I was like, ah, that's, that's so good. It's, it's so, so devastating. Good. Yeah. Yeah, it's really well written. It's really well timed. And just like, we all know like what the bite means and just like the slow reveal of like Gregor, like his mom is trying to tell him things and he is not hearing her because he's just like wiping away the powder and seeing the bite and we all know what that means. And suddenly we're thinking of like all that this implies and it's like, oh, no one's getting out of here. Like, <laughs> Grace can't take Boots home. Gregor isn't going to be able to go home. This is firmly cementing them in the Underland. And I talked both when we were covering the first book and the second book, how I didn't always feel the sense of dread about Boots possibly dying. That doesn't extend to Grace. Mm -hmm. Because we've already opened the series with the idea of he thinks his- or he, he Gregor doesn't believe his dad is dead, mm -hmm. but literally everyone else who's old enough to realize death is a thing thinks he probably is. Mm -hmm. Now we're at this series where Ares is on the brink of death, Luke's is missing, now Grace is infected, and it starts to feel like, oh, maybe someone who's like of actual importance in the series is going to die. Yeah, just like- from the sheer amount of people affected by this, like, odds are someone's not gonna make it out of this alive. And then, again, on a less personal level and more of, like, a big-picture one, this, again, throws the entire idea of the Overlanders being immune completely out of the window. Right. Because if Grace can get infected, then it really seems completely arbitrary how Gregor and Boots did not, and same with Merith. Right. So it's like, maybe it's completely unrelated to that mission, and it could literally happen to anyone. You're right, it does, it does throw even more doubt on the origins of the plague. It is a really good It's so good. It's so good. And then, I also just love, we go from the first part to part two, the title, just the jungle, yeah. which, as like I mentioned, is such a brilliant expansion of the world. Yes. Because it's the first time we really see something that new. Exactly. Because like at the end of book one, they fly over the waterway mm. to get back to the overland. So we like get a little taste of like, oh, there's this giant underground ocean. And we kind of like know that that's a thing that exists. But like, we've never heard of the jungle before. We have no idea what it is, and it's just this, like, big mysterious thing. And like you said, it really expands the Underland, because it's not just caves and darkness like we've seen so far. It's teeming with life in a way that the rest of the Underland isn't. It's so much different from everything we've seen so far. It's a location that everyone is scared of, also. Yeah. The rats are, like, willing to throw in the towel as soon as they hear where the supposed cure is located. Right. Like, it's not worth that. We'd rather take our chances with the death curse. Yeah, yeah. Everyone is, is thinking, like, how dangerous it is. 
in the next few chapters, we're going to finish the plague meeting and talk about venturing into the jungle. And oh my god, I'm just like so excited (laughs) for the rest of this book. It's so good. It's so intense. And truly, like, it just keeps ramping up the intensity throughout. Another thing I really like is how unique each quest is. Mm -hmm. The Bane was supposed to be the way of ending the war by killing something. This is a way of almost like a stalemate, like a, a, a shared cause that they need to find a cure for. Yeah, no, I think it's really great how like the first book was like, we're going to rescue someone. The second book is we're going to kill someone. And then this one is the first time that it hasn't been like versus the rats. Like the rats aren't the antagonist. It's like the plague is the antagonist. And that's way more abstract than just like the humans are the good guys, the rats are the bad guys. This is like, now we have this greater threat and we all have to work together to fight this thing that is like unstoppable and gigantic. I like how thematically earlier it had been Grace asking Gregor like, okay, explain to me all the sides. Where does, where does everybody stand? Yeah. And like at that point, that's a valid question. But for this quest, it's not really important. Yeah. That's kind of been cast off for the moment. It's put on pause because this quest is an entirely different thing that, as we see with Grace being infected, makes it a lot harder for it to just be something the family can walk away from. Right. The The Underland has just entangled them, the prophecy has entangled them, and the plague has entangled all of these different species, so they have to participate in this thing together. This whole book, it's really complex. It's like, I think why so many people like it so much is that It represents this shift from the simplicity of we have to kill the rats or we have to rescue dad from the rats. Like that is very simple, like good guys versus bad guys. And then this book is the first book in the series to throw all of that in the fucking trash and just absolutely like remix everything that we thought about the different sides in this war. The middle book of series for fictional storytelling is usually the best spot for that to happen. Like it's like a, the first few series are like the rising and then the third one is when everything totally shifts. Yeah. You get that in so many different forms of fiction and movies and books and shows even with like episode counts where you can mark where that swerve narratively happens. You're so right. It's a turning point. It's a turning point. It's like when you learn the three act structure in school, the midpoint of the story, there's always like a major turning point, Mm -hmm. like some big reveal or some like everything is not what we thought it was. And it doesn't like change the direction as much as like recontextualizes everything. Yes, exactly. This book does a lot of recontextualizing of the underland yeah this one's pretty good this is a good one i still love the marks of secret better just because there are so many of my favorite scenes in marks of secret but this one is like a very close second i'm waiting for the reads. i'm wait- waiting to see if my favorites are reevaluated because currently my favorite is code of claw mm-hmm. because i think each book really does get successively better and better for mm-hmm. the one before it even though it starts off so great like it just ramps up more and more for the yeah. best but i'm wondering if my favorite will be reinterpreted and maybe because like again when i'm rereading them now like i'm like they're all so great they're all so great and i can't wait to keep working our way through them but until then thank you so much for joining me john thank you for having me 
Next week's episode will cover chapters 10, 11, and the first half of chapter 12, because it's a beefy one. Don't forget to send us your questions and theories at returntoregalia at gmail.com or drop them in the comments of this episode. Thank you for listening, and until next time, fly you high. Fly you high. <laughs>